It was May 31st, 1985, and schools across the United States were finishing up for the summer. 17-year-old Sherry Smith of Lexington, South Carolina, had just completed her final year at Lexington High School. The following days were going to be busy, but Sherry was excited. Her graduation ceremony, where she would be singing the national anthem, was taking place in just a couple of days on June 2nd. Then she and a group of friends would set off on a cruise to celebrate the end of their high school years and the beginning of a new chapter. But Sherry's plans would not come to be. Instead, tragedy struck the Smith family. For 28 days, a sadistic killer terrorized the family, and with that, the entire Midlands region of South Carolina. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 10, The Murders of Sherry Smith and Deborah Helmick. Sherry Faye Smith was born on June 25, 1967, to Hilda and Bob Smith in Columbia, South Carolina. Sherry was the middle child. She had an older sister, Dawn, and a younger brother, Robert Jr. The Smiths were a very tight-knit family. They were highly regarded and influential in Lexington, where they were active in both their church and the community. Sherry was bright, outgoing, and radiated positivity. She had bouncy blonde curls and a warm, inviting smile. Her friends and family knew they could always turn to her to lift them up if they were ever feeling down. The sun shone brightly that final day in May. Sherry had spent the afternoon at a pool party with her friends. At approximately 3.38 p.m., she returned to her home on Platte Springs Road. The driveway, which was about 200 meters long, led up from the main road to the home. The Smith's mailbox sat at the entrance to the driveway. Sherry's father, Bob, glanced out the window of his office, which was situated in the front of the house, and saw Sherry turning into the driveway in her car. Expecting that she would come through the door at any minute, he went back to what he was doing. About five or ten minutes later, however, he realized that he had not heard Sherry come in. Looking out the window again, he saw her car sitting at the entrance to the driveway next to the mailbox, but he could not see Sherry. Bob wondered what was taking her so long. He suddenly had a distinct feeling that something wasn't right. He hopped in his car and sped down the driveway. Once he arrived at the mailbox, it became clear that he was right to be concerned. There was Sherry's car, but no Sherry. The engine was still running, and the driver's door was wide open. On the passenger's seat sat Sherry's purse. There were bare footprints leading from the car to the mailbox, but none coming back. It was established from the outset that Sherry would not have left of her own accord. She was content and happy in life. She loved her family, and she was excited for the summer ahead. Furthermore, she was diabetic and would not have gone anywhere without her medication. On examination of the scene, investigators surmised that Sherry had gone from her car to the mailbox and was snatched by somebody. She then dropped the mail. 
Right away, the Lexington County Sheriff's Department organized a manhunt. At the time, it was the largest to take place in South Carolina's history. Despite this, it did not turn up any clues as to Sherry's whereabouts. The Smith family were sick with worry and publicly pleading with Sherry's captor to let her go. Otherwise, all they could do was wait. Their feelings of helplessness and lack of control were unbearable. For the first time in my life, as the father and protector of my household, I was not in charge of my home, Bob recalled. Two days after Sherry disappeared, on the evening of June 2nd, the Smiths received a phone call from a man with a distorted voice. He asked to speak to Sherry's mother, Hilda. Sherry is with me, he told her. He described the black and yellow swimsuit Sherry had on under her clothes to prove that he was serious. He told her that Sherry was doing well and that they were watching TV together. He did not demand any money in exchange for Sherry's return, but he told Hilda that they would be receiving a letter the following day. What with the year being 1985, investigative techniques employed by authorities were that much slower. Detectives eventually traced the call to a payphone in Columbia, 20 miles from the Smith home. By the time they were able to pinpoint a more precise location and travel there to investigate, whoever made the call was long gone. Detectives, along with Bob Smith, arrived at the Lexington post office early the following morning and began sorting through the mail. Sure enough, they found a letter addressed to the Smiths. The letter, which was two pages in length, was in Sherry's handwriting. Across the top, she had written the words, Last Will and Testament. Several times throughout the letter, Sherry emphasized to her family how much she loved them. She wrote that they should not let this ruin their lives and that some good would come out of it. The most chilling part was her request that she have a closed casket at her funeral. Bob was devastated by the words, last will and testament, but he refused to abandon hope that his daughter might still come home. What he dreaded the most was showing the letter to Hilda. The letter was sent to the South Carolina Law Enforcement Crime Lab. Here it would be examined by a forensic document examiner, particularly for trace evidence, such as fibers, fingerprints, or handprints. Another call came into the Smiths that afternoon. The same distorted voice was on the other end. The man asked Hilda if they had received the mail, to which she replied that they had. He then asked her if she believed him. She replied that she was not sure because she had not heard from Sherry and did not know whether she was really okay. The man replied that she would know in two or three days. When Hilda asked why it would take two or three days, he said, call the search off. Then he hung up. That evening, the Smiths received yet another call. While the man began by saying that Sherry was alive and he planned to release her soon, he ended the call by ominously saying, Sherry is now part of me. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, our souls are now one. Sherry's captor, whoever he was, appeared to be very much enjoying taunting the Smiths. Having them at his mercy no doubt instilled in him a feeling of power he likely never felt before. The next day, June 4th, 
the Smiths received another call from Sherry's captor. This time, Don Smith spoke to him. He told her that at 3.10 a.m. on Saturday, June 1st, Sherry wrote the letter. Then at 4.58 a.m., he said that they became one soul. When Don asked what that meant, he told her not to ask questions. He said that Sheriff James Matz of the Lexington County Sheriff's Department should stop searching for Sherry. In the background, Hilda pleaded with him not to kill her daughter. Sherry loves and misses y'all, he said. Get good rest tonight. On June 5th, at around noon, he called the Smiths again. He told Hilda to listen carefully, and then he proceeded to give detailed directions to a specific location. He ended the call by saying, We're waiting. God chose us. Law enforcement officers followed the directions he provided on the phone. Hilda begged to go along, but was told it would not be a good idea. What they found confirmed everybody's worst fears. Sherry's body was exactly where he said it would be, behind an old Masonic lodge in Saluda County, 18 miles west of the Smith home. Her autopsy showed that she had been dead for close to four days. The medical examiner estimated that she had been killed about 12 hours after being kidnapped. When the man said on the phone that he and Sherry became one soul on June 1st at 4.58 a.m., detectives assumed that this was the time that he killed her. They were unable to determine Sherry's cause of death but a residue of duct tape on her face indicated suffocation. Pieces of her hair had been cut off because the tape had gotten stuck in it. Detectives took this to mean that whoever killed Sherry knew what he was doing. For example, his fingerprints would have ended up on the duct tape. Due to the extended period of time Sherry's body had been left out in the elements, no forensic evidence was recovered. They could not definitively prove whether Sherry had been sexually assaulted. FBI agents John Douglas and Ron Walker came up with a detailed profile of Sherry's killer. They categorized him as an organized killer who was sophisticated in his methods and had been planning this murder for a while. It was possible that he had previously committed sex crimes and or crimes of a similar nature. According to their profile, he would be quite young, in his mid to late 20s or early 30s. They were sure that he was white, probably unremarkable looking, and overweight. He had likely been married, but was now divorced or separated. He lived alone or with his parents. He was of above-average intelligence, with a knowledge of electronics, given that he had altered his voice for the phone calls. He probably had a criminal record, which would include assaults against women and or harassment. He was not impulsive or one to take chances. From listening to recordings of the phone calls, the FBI agents and detectives were convinced that he was reading from a script that he had written. The giveaway was that he sometimes stumbled and would go back to the beginning of a sentence and start over, saying the exact same phrase again. 
Careful examination of the evidence led Douglas and Walker to the conclusion that this was not a one-off for Sherry's killer, and in all likelihood, he would kill again if not captured. He was drunk on the feelings of power and control that manipulating Sherry's family gave him. He no doubt yearned for these feelings to continue. Even after Sherry's body was found, her killer was not done rubbing salt in the Smith family's wounds. He particularly enjoyed speaking to Don on the phone. On June 6th, he called the Smiths again. Don answered, and he told her that he was planning to turn himself in the next day, but he was contemplating killing himself instead. He then asked for her forgiveness. Sometimes he would mix up Don and Sherry. He accidentally said that everything had gotten out of hand, and all he wanted was to make love to Don. When Don questioned this, he corrected himself, saying that he meant Sherry. Obviously aware of the date of Sherry's funeral, he chose that evening to make his next call to the Smiths. Once again, he spoke to Don, and chose this time to be particularly cruel. He described to Don the details of Sherry's death and ways in which he sexually assaulted her. He explained to Don that he let Sherry make her own decisions regarding her death. For example, he let her choose what time she would die. He also gave her the choice of dying by shooting, a drug overdose, or suffocation. She chose the last option, he told Don. He killed her by covering her nose and mouth with duct tape. God was ready to accept her as an angel, he said. After that, the phone calls stopped. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Two weeks after Sherry was kidnapped from outside of her home, her killer struck again. This time, he snatched nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick from her front yard in nearby Richland County, 24 miles from the Smith's home. It was broad daylight. She had been playing outside with her younger siblings, and her father was inside their trailer home. Like Sherry, Deborah was blonde and blue-eyed. Unlike Sherry, Deborah was just a kid. At this point, it had been eight days since Sherry's killer had called the Smiths. Detectives needed him to get in contact again, so FBI agents Douglas and Walker came up with a plan. Whoever killed Sherry and kidnapped Deborah loved attention. There was no doubt he believed that he was smarter than the detectives on the case. The agents thought that they might be able to lure him out of hiding with a memorial service for Sherry at the cemetery. Don would play a central role as he was obviously very fond of her. He would be paying close attention to the media, carefully consuming every story related to Sherry and Deborah, all the while patting himself on the back for having evaded capture. If the local media made a big enough story out of the memorial service, there was a good chance that he would attend, stand in the back, and silently gloat. The media coverage of the memorial service was just what the agents hoped for. 
members of the community came from far and wide to support the Smiths. At the instructions of Agent Douglas, Don brought a small stuffed koala bear, Sherry's favorite animal, to lay at her sister's grave along with the many bouquets of flowers. If Sherry's killer did attend the service, he would see Don with the bear. With any luck, he might return after the service finished and take the bear as a trophy. Detectives stood out of sight, taking down the license plates of all the vehicles that attended the service. Once it was finished, they hid, lying in wait for their suspect to appear and take the bear. But he never did. Just after midnight on June 23rd, the Smiths got another call. While Sherry's killer had not been brought out in the open by the memorial service, it clearly got his attention. He likely wanted to go to the service, but did not feel it was safe. Instead, he satisfied his need for attention by calling the Smiths again. Don answered the phone. Of course she didn't want to speak to him, but keeping him on the line was vital to catching him. As he had a number of times before, he brought God into the conversation, probably because he knew how seriously the Smiths took their faith, and he derived pleasure from bringing God into his taunts. A further indication that he was beginning to feel untouchable was the fact that he was no longer distorting his voice in the phone calls. The first thing he said to Don was particularly alarming. God wants you to join Sherry Fay. It's only a matter of time. You cannot be protected all the time, he said. Then he changed the subject to what he really wanted to talk to Don about. He asked her if she had heard of Deborah May Helmick. Don remembered a young girl who had been abducted in Richland County. Listen carefully, he said. Then he rattled off a series of directions, just as he had two weeks ago on the phone to Hilda when he gave directions to Sherry's body. He ended the call by saying, Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. It was like deja vu for the detectives. They followed the directions he had given them, knowing what they would find when they reached the destination filled them with dread. Sure enough, just off a dirt road, amongst thick brush, lay the body of Deborah May Helmick. Sherry and Deborah's killer was enjoying having the detectives and the Smith family at his mercy. As was covered in the FBI profile of him, he was likely of above-average intelligence. He knew not to leave any evidence on the bodies that could be traced back to him. His fun was about to come to an end, however, thanks to the piece of evidence he had practically placed directly in the hands of the detectives. The letter had been written on paper from a pad, so there was a good chance that things the killer had written on other sheets from the pad could have left indentations on the sheets Sherry used. The forensic document examiner used an electrostatic detection apparatus on the letter to detect any indentations. What he found was pretty incredible. The machine detected a list of names and telephone numbers. It appeared to be a call-in-case-of-emergency list. One phone number was nearly complete, only missing the final digit. It began with 205, which showed it was an Alabama number. The next three digits, 837, was the exchange for Huntsville. Detectives had nine out of ten digits they needed and there was only nine possibilities for what the tenth digit could be. 
They tested the phone number with the nine different options for the tenth digit. It was a young man who eventually answered the phone. Detectives asked if he had any connections to South Carolina. He told them that yes, his parents lived there. The man's father was Ellis Shepard, who lived just 15 miles from the Smith home. Ellis Shepard did not know how he could help the detectives, but he agreed to speak to them. He told them that he had been on vacation with his wife when Sherry Smith disappeared. The detectives played Shepard a recording of one of the killer's later phone calls to the Smiths, in which the voice was not distorted. Immediately, Shepard was able to identify the voice. That's Larry Jean Bell, he exclaimed. Larry Jean Bell had been house-sitting while they were away on vacation, Shepard told the detectives. On examination of Shepard's phone records from when they were away, detectives discovered that some of the calls to the Smiths after Sherry was kidnapped were made from the Shepard home. Shepard explained that he had left the list of phone numbers for Bell for while they were away. The list included the number of his son, who lived in Alabama. There is little information available on Larry Jean Bell's childhood. He was born in Ralph, Alabama on October 30, 1949, and was one of five children. The Bell family never settled in one place for long, moving between Alabama, South Carolina, and Mississippi. Bell graduated high school in Mississippi and went to trade school to become an electrician. When his training was finished, he moved to Columbia, South Carolina, where he got married and had one son. In 1970, Bell joined the Marines, but he was enrolled for less than a year. He was discharged after accidentally shooting himself in the knee while cleaning a gun. After his short stint in the Marines, he worked for a brief period at the Department of Corrections in Columbia. In the early 70s, Bell moved frequently between Columbia and Charlotte, North Carolina. In 1972, Bell, his wife, and their young son moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Bell worked for Eastern Airlines in Charlotte, a half-hour drive north. In 1974, he and his wife divorced. I'm assuming she got full custody of their son. In 1975 and again in 1976, Bell was charged with sexual assault and battery against two different women in South Carolina. The first time, he was sentenced to five years probation. The second time, he was sentenced to five years in prison, but was paroled after serving two years. After being paroled, he moved back to Charlotte. In October 1979, Bell was convicted of harassing women in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, over the phone, making sexually explicit comments. He was given a two-year suspended sentence and five years probation. When Bell picked up Ellis Shepard and his wife from the airport after their vacation, he was not himself. He seemed nervous and on edge. He had not shaved and had lost weight. All he wanted to talk about was the missing Smith girl. Bell was a textbook example of a killer who was beginning to unravel. The behaviors he was exhibiting are precisely what FBI behavioral analysts look for when trying to track down a killer. Sheriff James Metz would later discuss the application of behavioral analysis in this case. 
Research in the field was in its early stages at the time, he explained. But John Douglas, as well as other agents from the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, worked on the case with him. Their profile of Sherry and Deborah's killer was spot on. The only part they were slightly off on was his age. Bell was a few years older than the agents thought he would be. They were, however, correct regarding the following. Bell was white and slightly overweight, although he had lost weight since kidnapping and murdering Sherry. He was divorced. He was pretty intelligent and had a good knowledge of electronics. He had also committed sexually motivated crimes in his past, as I detailed earlier. On June 27, 1985, 28 days after kidnapping and murdering Sherry Smith, Bell was arrested. Police found further evidence in the Shepherd home that incriminated him. Six long blonde hairs that were almost definitely Sherry's. I don't believe that they were forensically tested, but they were said to be microscopically similar to her hair. They did not belong to Mrs. Shepherd or anybody the Shepherds knew. Bell denied that he was involved with the murders of Sherry Smith and Deborah Helmick, but rather than just outright denying it, he claimed it was the bad Larry Jean Bell who was guilty of the murders. In February 1986, Bell went to trial for Sherry's murder. He made a scene during his six-hour-long testimony, yelling bizarre and nonsensical things like the following. Mona Lisa is a man, and silence is golden, my friend. He was obviously trying to manipulate the jury into believing that he was delusional, but nobody bought it. The jurors deliberated for just 47 minutes. They returned a verdict of guilty on both counts of kidnapping and first-degree murder. Bell was sentenced to death. He was tried separately in 1987 for the kidnapping and murder of Deborah Helmick. The jury in that trial came back with the same verdict, guilty on both counts. It was not only Sherry and Deborah's families and friends who were shaken by the heinous acts of Larry Jean Bell. The entire state of South Carolina was on edge from the time Sherry was kidnapped to the day Bell was arrested. The scars he inflicted on the communities Sherry and Deborah left behind still remain to this day. Bell was given a choice between being executed by lethal injection or by the electric chair. He ultimately chose the chair. There were no reports of Bell being a violent prisoner, but I doubt that his loud and frequent declarations that he was the son of God made him any friends while in prison. On October 4, 1996, after 10 years on death row, 46-year-old Bell died in South Carolina's electric chair. He had no final words. Larry Jean Bell was considered a suspect in the disappearances of at least two other women in Charlotte, North Carolina. As I mentioned earlier, Bell moved frequently between Charlotte and Columbia. 26-year-old Sandy Elaine Cornett disappeared from her apartment in Charlotte in November 1984. Sandy, an insurance claims adjuster and part-time model, was engaged to a co-worker of Bell's. Apparently, Bell had attended a birthday party at her apartment before. Bell became a suspect in Sandy's disappearance in July 1985 after he was arrested and charged with kidnapping and murdering Sherry Smith. 
On July 14, 1985, North Carolina authorities interviewed Bell about Sandy's disappearance. The interview lasted 12 hours. Bell spoke a lot of nonsense during the interview, telling detectives that his evil twin had killed Sandy by placing a bag over her head after tying her up inside her home, once again talking garbage about being Jesus Christ or some sort of holy being. Bell told the Charlotte detectives that he floated above the murder scene and watched as his evil twin killed Sandy and stole her bank card. State solicitor Donnie Myers added that Bell knew details about three withdrawals totaling $1,000 from Sandy's account after she disappeared. According to Charlotte Police Sergeant Rick Sanders, Bell repeatedly teased investigators for years about the location of Sandy's body. He even drew up a map for them once, but she was never found. Bell's attorney turned down a request from Charlotte Police to interview Bell again. Bell was executed before Charlotte police could question him further. Sandy's case remains unsolved. 21-year-old Denise Newsom Porch managed the Yorktown apartments where she also lived on Tavola Road in Charlotte. The last time anybody saw her, she was showing a man around the apartments on July 31, 1975. She had left her husband a note letting him know what she was doing. Despite an extensive search, Denise was never seen again. As it turned out, Belle had been living just 300 yards from the Yorktown apartments in Charlotte when Denise disappeared. I couldn't find whether Belle was ever officially interviewed with regards to Denise's disappearance, but I did read that he denied having any involvement. Denise was declared legally dead in 1982. I always like to give some background information about victims and their families, but unfortunately, I could not find much about Deborah May Helmick. I have no doubt that those who loved her missed her every day. Dawn Smith, determined not to let grief take over her life, decided to enter the 1986 Miss South Carolina pageant, as Sherry had always encouraged her to do. She was crowned the winner, singing a song from Romeo and Juliet as her talent. She would go on to become the second runner-up in the 1987 Miss America pageant. Dawn is now a Christian singer-songwriter and motivational speaker. She has written a book titled Grace So Amazing, a true story of God's grace in the midst of life-shattering tragedy. It is a tribute to Sherry and a testament to the pivotal role her faith played in guiding her after Sherry's murder. Bob Smith later praised the fortitude and strength his daughter displayed when she wrote the letter to her family, all the while knowing the unspeakable pain that lay ahead of her. That letter has been more closure to me than any kind of closure that the courts could do for me. Just the fact that she knew where she was going and she had that kind of faith. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, the first one I've recorded from my new studio I built in my closet. I hope you liked it. Please consider giving me a 5-star review on iTunes and subscribing wherever you're listening now. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com talkmurder. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. 
Until next time, friends.